if we really believe in embeddedness and interrelationality, we also have to adopt a more network structure kind of thinking, because then I'm not the independent individual, the individual agent. And whatever I do, it doesn't really have an impact on my surrounding. But quite the contrary, I am always within a network of relations. And whatever I do, it resonates through the network. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello and welcome back to the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. I'm Stina Heikela, co-host of the show alongside Simone Cicero. Today we have the pleasure of introducing a very interesting academic voice, Alicia Hennig, Associate Professor of Business Ethics. Her research focuses on Chinese philosophy and its applications in organizations in the context of values, ethics and innovation. In addition to her research, she also has practical working experience from Chinese as well as foreign companies in China. She's cooperating with a number of educational and business institutions to promote a better understanding of Chinese culture and thinking. Check out the show notes at stories.platformdesigntoolkit.com or any podcast platform for more details on her work. You'll also find intriguing suggestions to learn more about Chinese culture and philosophy. This conversation with Alicia was very crucial to explore the embracing of embeddedness or entanglement, as we sometimes call it. In other words, the critical need for organizations to see themselves as connected in the world they exist within. It turns out that Chinese philosophies, especially Taoism, is very much based on this concept of embeddedness. Taoism is thus providing at least part of Chinese management thinking, with mindsets that seem to be rare in most Western cultural traditions, and that may be more apt for a time of systemic shift. We also talk about the paradox between globalization, technological progress, and contextual indigenous approaches to management in relation with embeddedness. Will China's next generation of managers resist the universalizing power of technology, considering how the country has leapfrogged in the recent decades? By not striving for coherence like most Western philosophies, perhaps Chinese thinking really is more resilient to such forces and can more easily provide a platform for evolution in management, as stories like that of Hire seem to demonstrate. Alicia also talks passionately about the role of education everywhere in the world to showcase the richness of philosophies, wishing that more universities and business schools would diversify their curriculum to include Chinese, but also Indian, African, and other philosophical traditions. This is indeed a shared passion that we want to continue to explore with her in the coming months. Please enjoy this episode with Alicia Hennig. So just a little heads up for this episode that We have a little bit lesser sound quality than normally since we have to use a different recording setup. So you might experience a little bit of volume peaks throughout, but nothing that shouldn't stop you from enjoying this episode. Hello, everyone. We are back to the Boundless Conversation podcast. Today, I'm hosting the conversation with my usual co-host, Stina Heikila. Hello, hello. And uh, with us today, we have Alicia Hennig, who is Associate uh, Professor in Business Ethics. Ciao, Alicia. Ah, thanks for having me. Hello. Uh, hello. Nice to have you here. Very nice. So let me just say a couple of words on how we got in touch in, in the very first sense. I was basically researching on uh, hire. Now, you know, our listeners know that uh, uh, hire has been a topic of conversation and we have been co- collaborating with this company. And uh, I was just in general researching around, you know, the ideas that represented the roots of uh, Chinese management thinking. And uh, I encountered your paper uh, that I, if I'm not wrong, it's called Taoism in Management. And uh, I was really intrigued by your writing on the topic. And so a few months ago, we, we got back in touch and we, have, uh, we had a, a long conversation and I discovered that... Uh, Again, you are uh, more generally engaging with this idea of uh, ethics in business. And I think uh, this is a central topic that uh, everybody should be discussing now. So, Alicia, I would like to start from from there and especially from my experience in getting uh, exposed uh, to the ideas uh, of uh, Lao Tzu with regards to management. And I I recall when I was in China uh, attending the 
annual conference that Hyatt normally organizes every year. Zhang Rumin, uh, the CEO of the company, mentioned Lao Tzu Ching book and uh, quoting Lao Tzu, he said basically everything is part of a system, you know, a kind of uh, a knowledge that in his uh, management thinking and the way he was thinking about the company. So this topic of embeddedness, uh, it's really important, I feel, uh, when it comes to at least a part of Chinese management thinking, maybe you can also help us to understand a better the nuances. And sometimes I feel like it's not really reflected in current Western management thinking today. I feel like sometimes the, the Western organization instead has been completely detached and disentangled by things such as uh, the landscape or the community or in general the interdependencies that in reality are there uh, when it comes to having an organization that interacts with the world. So so what are your thoughts around this initial uh, reflection? So, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm same as the higher CEO. I got very much intrigued by the Dao Te Ching and this is the work I'm actually focusing um, in, in my own research. Um, also, because there are only like two really major Taoist works. Um, the one is the Tao Te Ching and the other is the Zhuangzi. And still like, they are like roughly, I don't know, 200 years apart. And um, the message they deliver, they still fall in the same category. Nevertheless, the works are written in different styles. And yeah, the Tao Te Ching is actually a work of political philosophy. Um, most of philosophy back then was like to entice the ruler to use that system for ruling. So I think it always had this kind of organizational aspect. And this is um, why it makes sense for me to look into that today and um, use it for management, right? Because even back then, it was about managing the people. But um, yeah, coming to the idea of embeddedness, um, the, the idea of embeddedness you find all across Chinese philosophy. But I think in Taoism, it's especially... The, the embeddedness of a human being in its um, external and natural environment in that sense. So there is more emphasis on nature. And um, especially in my context of business ethics, I like this relation, you know, that we need to understand we are um, interrelated to nature. Whatever we do to nature, it just comes back. Yeah? So it can potentially haunt us. And um, we can see that now with the climate change on the rise and things like that. Uh, so major, like nature is not forgiving, right? Whatever we do to nature, <laughs> it comes back to us in that sense. And I think this idea of embeddedness and really understanding um, this interrelationality and interdependency with our external environment is extremely helpful in um, a better understanding of what ethics and ethical action means. Yeah, because... When we really believe in embeddedness, we are forced to think more detailed about the consequences of our action. And I think this is what, what kind of is driving me. And also because the concept of embeddedness got somehow lost in Western philosophy. Right, because if I think about ethics in Western uh, organizational theory, uh, I think naturally we tend to think about the Protestant ethic of work and Max Weber's uh, work, uh, I would say. And um, this doesn't even mention the idea of embeddedness, you know, so there is not really a relationship with systems and nature uh, in the Western um, ethic of work, I would say, and, and uh, in the Western business ethics in general. Instead, it feels like uh, when you work with Chinese companies or in general, when you look into Taoism, for example, embeddedness, uh, to some extent, is the ethic. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, I think, well, the thing is we can't generalize all across China, right? I mean, higher is a very fascinating example um, of a more like, say, Taoist practice. Um, there are also examples of um, Confucian entrepreneurs, like people sticking more clearly to Confucian principles to have, a, you know, to instill a sense of ethics in their companies. Um, but still, like, this is a niche phenomenon, because when we look at um, Chinese companies more generally, I think they are not very driven by ethics, because there has been a long time where ethics has been suppressed. And, um, and now people find it more relevant again, and they are striving for, you know, implementing it in their companies. But these 
entrepreneurs doing that, they are still like, well, it's still a niche phenomenon, right? Um, I know researchers working on this and I'm working on this um, too from time to time. And we see like um, it's it's kind of a growing phenomenon, but it's still only um, a comparably small um, number of companies engaging in like really like deliberately engaging in more ethics in business. But um, I mean, I find like, The, the Chinese business ethics is especially like adequate for, for a business ethics because it was always very pragmatic, right? It was always about organizing, managing people. So I think um, there is um, a great potential in looking in, especially into Chinese philosophy for inspiration of how to run a company based on which ethical principles, for example. And um, I think like, Well, because we have these two major Chinese philosophies and they give us two different angles, it may even make sense to combine the two. And perhaps like the link between um, the company and its um, natural environment and Confucianism is more about really managing people. And that was the, the, the topic where I was curious to ask you more. This idea that uh, the traditional ethics or in general, uh, I would say, cosmology or uh, religions, let's call it, or philosophies, so let's call it uh, as we want, uh, in China are, uh, have this uh, political nuance. You said, you know, it's always, it's always been about managing people. It's always been about uh, governing, uh, and uh, which uh, I can totally resonate with that. And I've read the Dao De Jing and, and being now in the process of, of reading uh, Chang Tzu, if I'm not wrong. If I look into the Western tradition, that's uh, completely different. You know? Can you share a couple of words on why do you think in the roots of uh, the traditions in China there is this nuance, this political nuance? Maybe it's the nature of the empire versus maybe the fact that uh, in the West uh, our tradition is more related to this uh, nomadic people that were the Hebrew tribes at the time where, where the pillars of our you know, religion were being written in, in the West? Well, what I personally find convenient, so to say, about Chinese philosophy is that it gives me a whole logical system of embeddedness, yeah, of, of like the, the logic of embeddedness, right? Because they have, as you said, like this kind of cosmology, right? They believe in the harmony of heaven, earth, and the human being. So when, when we know this down, it makes a triangle relation, right? Whereas um, Western behavior was very much dominated by a singular connection between the human being and God, at least since the introduction of Christianity. And I think that made a major difference because there, like in this singular relation, there is no interdependency, whereas in a triangular relation, there is much more potential for interdependency and interrelationality. And for me, this still makes a major difference. Um, and then it's, of course, reflected in such ideas that the human being is embedded, right, in a social system and a natural system and things like that. Like in, in the Western thinking, we once had the idea of embeddedness. It's not that this is totally alien to Western thinking. So we had Karl Polanyi, for example, in the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, again, speaking um, about embeddedness. But when I look at business ethics today, for example, I mean, it's kind of coming back through systems thinking, um, but I don't see, um, so to say, an, a clear ideological foundation in Western thinking, which would bring up the idea of, embeddedness, of embeddedness as clearly as Chinese philosophy. So we have Karl Polanyi, but otherwise, I really would have need to dig deeper to see whether any Western philosopher would have talked about embeddedness before. Kapulani is the only person I know. So this is why I found it so inspiring to look into a completely different philosophy because it gives me already a very complete framework for this embeddedness. And this is for me a good starting point um, to formulate different and, and new approaches in, in ethics, so to say, and also in business ethics. Yeah, thank you. So it's clearly a very interesting proposition that you <laughs> that you come forward with. And What do you think is needed in order to nurture such a perspective uh, that seems to be uh, offering like a promising avenue in a way for business ethics also in the West? Uh, so I'm wondering where to start in a way, how to import, how to mesh up, where can we go? Right. I mean, that's, of course, a very crucial question, how to instill 
this kind of thinking in people. And I think, um, well, then when we discuss about that, we can't get around education. So education will be a key. And that also means like we have to um, make education more global. We have to make the curriculum of education more global. For example, in philosophy, where Chinese philosophy is still... I mean, I never had Chinese philosophy when I was when I was studying philosophy, right? It is because also there are not so many people who can teach Chinese philosophy in the West. It is it is a niche topic. It is a niche subject. But ideally, what I would love to see is, for example, in philosophy, um, more than just like Western philosophy, but also Indian philosophy, Chinese philosophy, whatever comes from African philosophy, right? That we have a more complete canon of um, what philosophy actually is because the discipline was very much dominated by western imperialism and the thinking of that um, west only western philosophy is true philosophy right this is a big problem in the discipline and then when it comes to business ethics we need to understand okay there are also different ethical approaches to business in other countries so again we need to include that in the curriculum and when we come to economics for example we also need to understand well, here in the West, we have a capitalist system. We have, a, perhaps in Germany, we have a social market economy. But in other countries, we have other economies. And also that needs to be better integrated. So um, I'd say for university education, we really need a more global approach to education. This is what I, I, I'd be wishing for. And then we, when we have these people who are already educated with a bit broader mindset, then this will trickle down in business. But of course, it, it takes like one or two generations, right? There seems to be two perspectives to what uh, you were talking about. One is the perspective of uh, this idea that we should develop a more general curriculum of learning for management that is not just based on one theory, but it's much more integrating different theories and different philosophies. So to some extent, it sounds like... Um, a universalization of the management theory, which at the end of the day sounds meaningful in relationship with the fact that uh, we all share the same world. But at the, on the other hand, I think the perspective of embeddedness, and as somebody else calls it, this idea of entanglement and much more relationship between the organization and the local environment is calling for uh, rediscovering more indigenous uh, thinking about uh, you know how do we show up in the world and how we produce value interact with each other which resonates with also the the work of uh, Hong Kong uh, based philosopher Yuk Hui which is one of uh, of which of whom we are a big fans I think uh, it connects with what you said about uh, African thinking or Indian thinking and and so on so what is your take on um, these two seemingly clashing drivers, one for universalization and one for more local, indigenous, like Yukui calls them, the cosmotechnics, local cosmotechnics, you know, local ways of organizing that are able to deliver a local way of thinking about the humans in the world and in relationship with the, with the landscapes and, and environments and communities? Yeah, perhaps that led to a misunderstanding. So by actually offering a global curriculum, I wasn't um, really thinking of um, a universal approach because I don't think there is something like a universal approach. I mean, yes, um, some aspects across philosophies you may be able to combine, of course, and you should be able to combine later on, the same as management practices and things like that. But I wouldn't think that leads necessarily to um, a universal approach. It's still an approach like which is made of, of very different aspects. So when I'm speaking of a global curriculum, what I had in mind was more like that we owe it to our students that they know the richness of the world, right? Whatever the world has to offer, we should at least give them a glimpse of it, right? We should let them know in India they do things like that. In China, they may do things like this or that. Um, yeah, compared to the US where they think where they do things differently than in the European Union, right? So that we actually kind of get the whole diversity of this globe and its practices into the curriculum. I know that there will be a lot of stuff, right? So I mean, in practice, of course, we need to think about how, how to manage um, that, um, that material, right? Because it's quite a lot. But for, for students today, I think it's very important to develop a more global mindset based on the local differences, right? 
So of course they should see, um, they should especially see indigenous approaches in that sense. Um, and, and not like, you know, putting them all together, but understanding, okay, this is an approach which is different to that one is different to that one, right? So that we get an idea of all these different things. And then we can, we have a better understanding of what approach works together with what else. Um, so that's the idea in general. So I'm not for any convergence but for an acceptance of the differences because we can generally learn from each other's differences. So that's, that's the entire idea um, actually behind that. I don't believe in, in anything universal. I, I find it like, I know Western philosophy is very much about universal thinking, but having lived in China for so long, it, I don't think universalism is, is the right way to go. Of course, we have to agree at some point, at some level, but for me, it's more about acceptance of differences than actual convergence. Sometimes it looks like and feels like technology uh, has been such a universalizing force that it makes it hard to think uh, uh, beyond the frames of uh, uh, you know, what we believe it means to live in a modern society. You know? So, for example, China. China has this very different basis. It feels like... Uh, for example, you mentioned Polanyi, but I could mention Gregory Bateson's work. So, so it's really like in the West, uh, this interdependency thinking was more like an academic world, while in China it's much more embedded in the basics of their mindsets and thinking system. But at the end of the day, both uh, of us have been falling into this idea that uh, we, we need to live in a super technological, modern society where we control everything and we ensure that everything works smoothly while i think embracing indigenous thinking and i, I think i love your, your points when you make uh, the point that we need to accept that there could be uh, indigenous thinking about management for example at the end of the day it means also accepting that we cannot control all the system but that uh, local systems may have some uh, uh, I would say issues, and uh, maybe we accepting complexity and in, in, in inter interconnectedness also deals with uh, accepting that uh, the technosphere and the human technosphere can fail, which is also the point that uh, the uh, complaint Bernard Stiegler made a few times with his idea about the Neanthropocene. What is your your point of view on this? Yeah, I get this. I mean, I think you're totally right when you say that um, this embeddedness thinking is more prevalent in like daily thinking in China than it is here. I mean, here, I, I'd also say like from my experience living in Germany and having worked across Europe, it's um, it's more an academic thing to understand there could be embeddedness or there is actually embeddedness. And there is also dialectics, for example, whereas for the Chinese people, it's just daily business, right, to, to kind of live your life according to this very basic logic. And, um, of course, that's why they are so much better in, like, thinking and interdependencies and interrelationalities compared to us. Um, but, yeah, going to the techno stuff and, like, potentially a convergence uh, through, the, um, through advancements of technology, I mean, this is something... Of course, like, I don't know how the next generations in China will be, right? Because the technological impact is just so strong in China. Uh, through, like, leapfrogging of technologies within 30 years, they are more advanced than we are. So there was, like, I mean, a heavy impact um, in terms of changes on these generations now. Um, I just think, like, well, if the Chinese still stick to their traditional philosophies and they can keep their philosophical thinking alive we will always see differences right between our system for example and their system but if the later generations forget about their traditional thinking i think it it may lead more to convergence and, and i don't know universalism um, but but i hope i mean i sincerely hope this is not going to happen because we need to have all these different ways of thinking on this planet to learn from each other so a true convergence just through technological advancement would be actually very sad um, but yeah, I think like in every country, culture is, because culture is a historical product, it cannot just be easily overridden by a technological convergence. At least that's, that's what I believe in. But of course, there, there's no empirical proof to that. Um, 
But what I also wanted to say about technology, I mean, isn't technology actually, again, um, the elusive attempt of human beings to control technology is nothing else than control, right? And then when we look in the Tao Te Ching again, we actually understand we cannot control. So I see, I see quite of a paradox here. Right. That's the paradox that I wanted to stress. You know, the idea that uh, a management thinking for the 21st century is a management thinking that accepts that we cannot control. And to some extent accepts also that uh, the illusion of control led us in a space where now we need to deal with uh, some cascading issues related to the unraveling of the biosphere, for example. So today, when I speak about management with my colleagues, I always try to make the point that um, we are at an inflection point and we need, uh, to some extent, a management thinking that accepts new basis of operations. Uh, We're starting from a new perspective. So how do you see this new mindset being enforced on a management community. So uh, if not enforced, how do you see that uh, things changing, basically? Uh, Is it just about crisis over crisis over crisis? Is it going to be about, you know, these um, geopolitical frictions and the fragmentation of the world? What do you think about uh, how things are going to unfold from this perspective and driving finally, eventually, the adoption of a new mindset in management that is much more uh, real, I would say, in, even in Taoist uh, terms? Well, I'm not directly from the management discipline, right? But of course, I'm writing stuff um, which falls into the discipline. And um, the general problem is, I can tell you, as a philosopher, you don't get full recognition in this discipline. And I, a number, I know a number of people who are also like working on this kind of interdisciplinary thing between like philosophy, business ethics and management. And I'm sometimes you can see discussions popping up of, yeah, do we need a kind of revolution in management and management thinking? And I think this is exactly what we need. I mean, we can look back at the financial crisis of 2008. That could have been a great starting point for something new. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. So now we have COVID-19 could be, again, a great starting point for overhauling old ideas and things like that. I'm not quite sure whether this is going to happen. Um, I would wish for, but in practice, that means we also have to change significantly management education. And that, again, goes back to the universities. And when I look back at the universities, I'm wondering, I mean, they are slow to move in that sense. And um, so hopefully we have enough brilliant people in these disciplines who push for changes in the curriculum and different emphasizes in teaching. But I don't know yet. I mean, I I try to do that in my own seminars. Um, at some universities where I'm teaching, they are really open for um, new seminars and things like that. But generally, um, I find it difficult to place really interesting, entertaining, innovative seminars at universities. For me, like because they have strong bureaucratic structures, I think it, it, will, it will stay difficult to uh, introduce a, a significant change. So what else can we do then, right? We can, for example, work just on those people in management positions now, right? And offer trainings and offer seminars. So not targeting students, but targeting professionals. That could be another option. And then, yeah, of course, what, what should be in that kind of curriculum, right? Um, speaking of control, speaking of unexpected happenings, like now COVID-19, um, what is the lesson learned for management? So I think... One thing we have to definitely include in in management thinking and management education is the paradigm of embeddedness, that we learn to understand there are interdependencies and I better need to watch out for the consequences of my actions because they are not just affecting me as an agent. And um, that's the most important part, right? Because I think Western thinking is still too much tied to the agent, and then we always believe in the agent and, and individuality and in independence of the agent. But as you said, in reality, it's just a bit more complicated. So embeddedness. And then from that, um, well, where does these, where do these notions of embeddedness come from, right? So looking deeper into different philosophies and try to break them down into something managers can work with. I think that's, that's something I'm having um, on my mind. Great, thanks. Uh, I actually wanted to turn... And the conversation a little bit to something that you also mentioned in the preparations for this 
episode, it was this connection with being able to think in terms of networks. When you talk about the potential to maybe combine different philosophies and adding a sort of a layered thinking, whether it's in business management or other sort of governing aspect, that it enables you to think in terms of a network and being able to see where you could have a potential impact on a node or a certain certain player. And it would be great to hear more what you think that this could mean, both for the shift that we were talking about, you know, because we've seen also in the COVID, for instance, that networks have been quite powerful in building the kind of effects that can influence at huge scale, actually. Uh, so whether you see that this dynamics could, you know, help to also implement, influence how organizations are shaped to some extent. Yeah, I think that these are like two things for me. So one is like the the, the network phenomenon and the other is like the, the second layer, although like they are a bit connected. So for me, like um, uh, better understanding Chinese philosophy and learning from it today means for me, I can add, let's say, a non-Western layer to my thinking and use that for evaluating my situation, um, using that for finding another solution, for example, and things like that. So, um, for example, aspects like circularity, um, that, that time is... Uh, circular and not linear helps me for a better understanding of my situation and coming up with um, better solutions. Um, and other aspects, for example, dialectics, like dialectics of the yin-yang logic, like, you know, wherever there's shadow, there's light, right? I mean, it sounds very simple, but it really helps you. Um, it, it shaped my attitude um, a lot. And so this is one thing. This is like the second layer or the additional layer we can just add on on our default layer with which we have been socialized, with which we have been raised, which has been more manifested through our education system here. Nevertheless, there is, I think, with learning the option to add some other layer on top of it, um, not replacing the other one, right? It's just something which, which comes on top. And then the network thing is the other thing that I thought, okay, if we really believe in embeddedness um, and interrelationality, we also have a we have to adopt a more like network structure kind of thinking because then I'm not the um, independent individual, the individual agent. Um, and whatever I do, it doesn't really have an impact on my surrounding, but quite the contrary, um, I am always within a network of relations and whatever I do, it resonates through the network. And actually it comes to a point where I don't have any control anymore. That's why I should especially think things through in order to not cause unnecessary disturbances. And just think about um, a spider web, right? When, when you take it at one point, it resonates through the whole web. And I think this could be actually true about our own relations and our own position in the world. We never know what happens when we just, you know, take that, like push that button. And because we cannot know for sure, we will never be able to know for sure, only for the next, I don't know, let's say, two, three network nodes, so to say, or two, three social relations in our circle, um, we actually have a strong ethical responsibility to act um, in an ethically appropriate way. Yeah? So from this kind of network thinking and embeddedness actually comes um, a strong ethic, in my opinion. And what does it mean from the perspective, you know, I'm really, of course, interested to this topic that you raise about networks, you know, because... Uh, we, we, we're doing platforms and ecosystems thinking here. So, so we are a big uh, proponents of uh, developing these more network type uh, organizations. And, uh, and, you know, of course, we are interested in both the drivers and the effects of such uh, uh, embracing such a, an organizational structure. So my question would be maybe if you think about, uh, uh, you know, changing this mindset. You know? So let's say that, uh, uh, we have this magic wind and, uh, um, and we can change the mindset and we can create this new thinking systems inside our management, uh, you know, representatives and management community. Uh, what would it mean uh, in terms of, uh, if you have ideas in terms of how do you structure an organization or um, at least uh, how do you structure, you know, uh, not just an organization, but a business model or a leadership practice or, uh, or in, in general, I mean, how do we design and, and run our uh, institutions, both the public and the, and the private? 
I wrote about this in the past and what I was writing was, well, ideally we have a more humanistic system, right? That also um, concerns organizations because the, the way organizations are currently run are still often very hierarchical. And then it, like when you look at the recruiting process, it's more like um, kind of interested in your technical skills. So you're hired for your technical skills or whatever skills you have, but you're not hired for your personality. You're not hired for any other like parts of, well, you as a human being, which could potentially matter because it's always like the technical skills, which are at the forefront when it comes to hiring. And I think, first of all, we need to change for example, recruiting practices. And there is already a model for that. When we look, for example, at Japanese companies, they also look for skills, of course, but they also have a strong belief in that skills can still be developed within the company, but a personality cannot. So either your personality is in that sense right and it fits with the company or it doesn't. So that's the recruitment approach of Japanese companies. And I think we can learn quite a lot. Uh, from this, um, because in the future, it's not just about our technical skills, it's also about who we are as a personality. And what else can we offer to the organization beyond our technical skills? And so that, of course, on the backside requires an organization which can make use of our of us as a human being in our completeness, right? And for this, of course, structures need to be broken up. Um, employees need to have more autonomy, but employees also need to be educated what it means to have more autonomy, because with more autonom autonomy comes more responsibility. Yeah? So not every person may be fit for this kind of model too, right? Because not every person is interested in working totally autonomously, working with a lot of responsibility, right? So we will need to create a diverse system, which on one hand, definitely allows more for realizing our human capacities than the current system. I think that would be um, a very important add-on to organizations or organizational thinking today that we make up our mind, how can we make use of the human being? How can we pay respect to the complete human being in organizations and not just having the skills perspective? Yeah, And then... In the last like the last aspect then is of course education because when people are not educated to think um, independently to think critically they may not be they may not be fit to take up an autonomous and responsible role right so you have this triangle of um, education um, and then management perspectives and recruiting and organizational setup and then you have the human being as such and this all needs to be worked on, so to say. Um, but I mean, it's not that we don't have examples, right? I mean, when I look at hire, we already can see a very progressed um, organizational structure, right? But again, I suppose also hire knows what kind of downsides come with it, because of course there are some kind of downsides or complications or difficulties. Um, nevertheless, I believe in the future, we need to pay more attention to the human being as a whole in the organization. I think that's that's also our ethical responsibility. But it's also like for the simple sake of efficiency, right? Only when we know what the human being can bring to the organization, we can make it like working fully effective. This resonates a lot with what we also discussed last time, you know, when we spoke about uh, the fact that companies like uh, Hire, for example, or even Zappos, um, that, as, that assume, you know, similar, uh, use the similar procedures, um, had tend to attract the people ma uh, much more or in general a lot about how they think and how they behave, what is their culture, what is their inclination, but also kind of companies that create this uh, uh, influence, um, you know, this field of uh, culture that tends to attract uh, only certain kind of people. So, for example, we spoke about higher having now this uh, employee brand, that uh, tends to attract all the entrepreneurial, seriously entrepreneurial people. So, uh, of course, I think one of the points that come out of uh, comes out of this conversation we are having is that uh, the organization of the future, if really embraces this interrelationality as a basis of its existence, uh, it's going to be uh, an, an organization that needs to, to um, I would say, uh, draw a more compelling human development issues. So it needs to attract uh, because it's a, it's a space where the humans 
can express their full potentiality. Okay, so that's one thing. But one, another thing that I think is really important from the conversation we are having is again this this idea of embeddedness. Because if we just do the the the, the former, so we just say, okay, our organization are gonna be you know the place where you can be expressing your the most of your creativity and whatever, uh, and and we recognize your human potential. Uh, but then if the purpose of the organization is still completely disconnected from uh, uh, the embedded systems, so to some extent you accept the interrelationality, but you, uh, you know, maybe we can say you don't accept the interdependency or something like that. Um, the risk is that you just develop a better machines for distraction to some extent. So, so the, the question is really, uh, you know, uh, how to recognize uh, and uh, how to, to 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 have this trans- to encourage this transition to uh, a new theories management that uh, you know is based on the idea of uh, reentangling the organization in the local in the context in the indigenous in, in the place where it operates and to some extent we can still have this globalized layer of thinking and organizations uh, that interact uh, in a completely disconnected way from the local, from the contextual, from the uh, from the embedded. Uh, so that's probably the biggest uh, question mark that I bring uh, with me after this, uh, in, uh, this at least at this part of the conversation. What do you think, Alicia? I will start with the first one. If I got it right, you're wondering about like a kind of paradox between the embeddedness or localization of indigenous approaches and the universal level of globalization. Is that correct? Yes, to some extent, uh, you know, the, the point that I was raising is this uh, paradox between uh, uh, acknowledging the need to to embed, to re-embed, and on the other hand, uh, uh, you know, uh, embracing this idea that uh, we can continue to think about our organizing as uh, uh, disconnected from the local, disconnected from the, the contextual, and uh, just embrace uh, the human, human potential theory, uh, the human potential thesis, no? So, so this the paradox that I see. Yeah, regarding the, the paradox, I guess, like of embeddedness versus, I don't know, universalism, perhaps. I don't know how to solve that. I think that's just a natural result that when you have um, contextual approaches in a country, um, they, they cannot be entirely universalized, right? So there may be things which can trickle down to other contexts, um, but other things may not be possible, or at least we don't know the extent to which they may be possible. I mean, we have seen pretty cultural-based practices of Asian companies um, internationalizing, and they could still maintain these, which is quite surprising, because when you think of that, the culture in Asia, no matter where, is very distinct to our culture in Europe or in the US, and they could still maintain those upon expansion. Um, Toyota, for example, is a good example for this. They maintain their culture in their um, U.S. subsidiaries, and that's quite a phenomenon how they did that. Um, yeah, then I just think like, okay, then we have all these different contextual approaches, and and the output or the result of that may be a kind of well convergence on on the surface. But when we dig deeper, we actually know it's not a convergence. It's just like um all that thing, all these aspects which trickle through and could be used in a global context um, independently of of, um, a a specific local cultural context, right? But this is something, I I don't know. I mean, we could see convergence in practices through the strong um, impact or influence of U.S. management um, techniques, uh, also in China, um, also in Europe. I think we all have U.S. influence no matter where we go. So this is a kind of level of, universalism but um uh, generally i would put ma- more emphasis on contextual approaches because this is how we can learn from each other but the, the second thought i had about embeddedness was like um so just imagine you only have a company which believes in yeah we should put more emphasis on the human being and we want to have more recognition recognition of the human being and then they set up all these structures for example um, so just rebuilding the structures they've seen elsewhere. So let's imagine someone wants to hire, uh, someone wants to copy hire as a model. And they think like, okay, cool. We, we adopt the matrix structure and things like that. And then we give ourselves a purpose, which may make sense. Then I would think 
this system is doomed to collapse because the foundational ideology is missing. So when we look at higher, for example, there is a foundational ideology, and this is inspired by Taoism, right? So with this comes in a consistent thinking, a consistent, consistent system of thinking, whereas when you have a company which just tries to copy this approach on the surface, the ideological part is missing. And I think this ideological part, or let's say, to keep it more neutral, like um, the mindset of a company um, that is the essential part which holds a company and its people together. Yeah. We could also see that, for example, um, with um, all the companies in, in the 90s copying lean management, copying Kaizen, they all missed the ideological foundation of these management practices and thus they failed, right? So whenever we think about like, let's think about a new business model and implement it, we should be aware of that it always must come with a foundational ideology, whatever that is, right? Um, but there needs to be some way of thinking which holds the company together. And I think this is a very important aspect of having new business models. Without an ideology, nothing will change because then only structures are copied, processes are copied, and, and it, it will just collapse at some point. And it looks like we, we this new ideology that uh, apparently we may be seeking for uh, it's an ideology that is at the same time shared and global uh, because it's going to be produced by by our global discords, but it's also in, uh, eminently uh, indigenous, and it's it's kind of calling us to get back to uh, to rethink our organizing in a way that is much more embedded and entangled in, in our uh, place. You know, in 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 the you know some somebody is now doing research on bioregional thinking, for example. So, so that's maybe the paradox, which is not a paradox uh, at the end of the day. And because um, uh, at the end of the day, you know, if you really accept complexity and you really accept uh, the fact that the world is different everywhere, uh, you just need to acknowledge this and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, accept that organizing as well needs to be different everywhere. So we cannot come, come with this kind of universalizing answers to whatever we do in management and, and in organizing. So I think uh, somehow we, we got to this final uh, uh, reflection. So, um, I mean, we, we covered a lot of ground, but I, I'm sure uh, we forgot something very important. So I would love to say if you, you still want to stress uh, one idea that maybe uh, needs to be on the table of our listeners when they when they rethink uh, large-scale uh, interdependent organizing for the 21st century, whatever we, we forgot maybe in the conversation? Well, the 20, in the 21st century, we need a different mindset, and that needs to come from a better idea of what is happening on the world in terms of approaches, right? So we get a better idea of the diversity um, that we can actually take from ideas from which we can profit or benefit, um, and then the second thing is, how do we put this in practice, right? How can we make be managers better managers in that sense? Yeah. How could that happen? So what kind of education, right? And I mean, um, I can only stress again the, um, the importance of um, university education. But again, like with the managers nowadays, I guess it's really important to um, draw the attention to um, a necessary mindset shift. And this can be only accomplished through, um, yeah, seminars, trainings, getting out the message in that sense. And then it will still take 10 to 20 years, right, for a, a fundamental shift, um, if we are lucky and if that's happening at all. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, for me, the focus is really how to, how to change management education. What, what options do we have? And um, I can only hope for people collaborating on this um, because it takes more than just a handful of people to uh, um, change a system, I believe. Maybe also the, the, the context of management will push to, to, to be faster no, than 30 years because I think we don't have, definitely we don't have 20 or 30 years to change our, the course of modern uh, management. So... Alicia, that, that was an amazing conversation. Uh, I think our listeners will, will have uh, lots of food for thought. Maybe we can end with uh, you pointing out where people can find your latest work. And also maybe if you want to suggest a couple of reads uh, besides the classics, 
you know, books or, or, or any other things that they can check it out to really start uh, grasping the ideas we've been discussing today in this uh, conversation? Yeah, so um, my research is like, I usually post my research also on my LinkedIn website. And then I have my own website, which is called uh, newvirtues.com. Um, so there I, I usually also have my research, like in terms of abstracts and uh, presentations and things like that. Um, for book um, recommendations, um, what I still love the most is like in my free time, I'm reading books by Chinese authors because I just love their way of storytelling. It's um, it's very different and it's always like kind of heartwarming and um, to read all these stories. I mean, they, they are sometimes, of course, fictional, but still like, you know, they, they have a glimpse of the truth in it. Um, so for like more than 10 years now, I'm regularly reading like, um, yeah, Chinese authors, of course, translated in English, but I love, I just love their way of storytelling. And the same is true for um, Chinese films. I think that if I don't get it wrong, it was Zhang Jiake, I may be mixing it up. Um, that's a contemporary um, filmmaker and I just love his movies. Um, they are really like, they, they always show like real life China, how, how actual people live in China. And um, yeah, I love, I just love the storyline um, and the flow of these movies. And lastly, um, a good book I can recommend, um, which I'm currently reading now is by Michael Schumann, Superpower Interrupted about, um, it, it has a lot of stuff on Chinese history um, covering the past 2000 years. And it's very interesting to read it in the context of um, China's ambitions today and um, the history of China. And it's very well written. Like it's like, like it's a definitely a good read, very accessible language. And I can just highly recommend that book, like for like more contemporary stuff on China. I think I want to make uh, the case uh, for, for our listeners to get interested in the two or three foundational book of Taoism as well. And we're going to add these links to the show notes. So, so check this out. Alicia, thanks very much. That was a great conversation. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And for our listeners, please uh, check out the notes and uh, stay in touch. We catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valtamobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music. Mm-hmm.